Well, amen. Thank you, Will. I'm uh, just blessed to have you with us today. Uh, y'all, y'all can see why I'm uh, constantly dropping hints to my younger brother that he should just move on down to Lowndes County. Uh, I'm going to start up in the ante a little bit and, and sending him Zillow listings every day, every time I see something. Uh, but, you know, he just needs to move on down here. I think, you know, South Georgia would be happy to have him. But, but man, we, we're, we're honored anytime Will comes and, and lends his talents and leads us in worship. Uh, if you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn to Philippians chapter 3. So we continue our series, Joy in All Circumstances. We'll look at one of the clearest explanations of salvation in the New Testament. In our passage, the Apostle Paul addresses the past, present, and future implications of redemption in Christ. In verses 9 through 11, he explains the doctrines of justification, sanctification, and glorification. And so according to Paul and, and, and the rest of the New Testament, the testimony of the Christ follower is this. In the past, you were justified, meaning you were counted righteous in Christ. In the present, you're being sanctified, meaning you're becoming like him by the power of his resurrection. And then in the future, you will be glorified, meaning you will be completely perfected in the final resurrection. And my original intention was hitting all three of these concepts in one sermon. But as I started reading and researching and writing, I discovered that one sermon would probably last around two and a half to three hours. And so for the sake of my sanity, at the end of last week, I pivoted from the original sermon plan, and I'm planning on focusing on one doctrine per week for the next few weeks. So this week... We'll start with justification. Next week, we'll look at sanctification. On Easter, we'll concentrate on glorification, which will be a fitting topic for Resurrection Sunday. Now, before we get into Paul's description of justification, let's quickly review the context of Philippians chapter 3. At the start of the chapter, Paul provides four marks, four distinctive marks of real faith. Because he understands you can know about Christ without knowing Christ. You can understand information without experiencing transformation. You can acquire head knowledge without undergoing heart change. Now to be clear, as we'll cover in a few minutes, the gospel is grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But if you're in Christ, you should see the fruit of true repentance. Paul says you should rejoice in the Lord. You should savor the same truth. You should worship by the Spirit, and you should put no confidence in the flesh. And Paul especially learned that last one the hard way. Verses 4 through 6, he lists his religious credentials from his former life for the purpose of making a simple point. He contends that if anyone could have gotten back to God by obeying laws, keeping rules, and doing good deeds, it was him when he was a Pharisee. Because no one could outwork him. No one was more moral. No one was more righteous. No one was more zealous. And yet he still fell short of God's standard. In his former life, he fine-tuned the external and ignored the internal. But when he came across Christ on the road to Damascus, he discovered he had the resume, but he didn't have the relationship. And so starting in verse 7, we get 
Paul, Paul showing us his new perspective, Paul providing his new perspective. On the other side of this encounter with Christ on Damascus Road, and after several years of following him, this is Paul's new perspective. He says, starting in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So before we get to, to 9 through 11, we're going to spend the most of our time, we need to address the progression of what Paul is saying here. So in verse 7, he's saying as he reflects on his time in the upper echelon of religious society, as he looks at the glory of being at the very top with all of his human praise and applause, as he considers his passion for law-keeping and his sense of moral pride as a Pharisee, he counts all of it as a loss. He describes his 180-degree turn where he completely reversed his values like this. He says, whatever gain I had. So his gains were his abilities, his accomplishments, his good works, everything he listed in, in verses 5 and 6. I counted all those gains as loss for the sake of Christ. So Paul's speaking in, in simple accounting terms, which is good because I barely passed accounting in business school. But basically... He envisions his life as a ledger sheet with two columns. The first column was a list of assets, and the second column was a list of liabilities. And John Piper explains his ledger like this. He says, on, on the gain side, on the asset side, was all of the human glory of verses 5 and 6. All of the things that he accomplished. And then on the loss side, was the terrible prospect that this Jesus movement might get out of hand and Jesus may prove real and win the day. But when Paul met Christ on the Damascus Road, they flip-flopped. Paul took a big red pen and wrote loss in big red letters on top of his gains column, and then he wrote gain in big red letters over the top of his loss column, and now it only had one name in it, Jesus Christ. When Christ redeemed him, Paul realized all of his credentials were actually a loss. For most of his life, his heritage, his wealth, his power, his influence, his reputation, his virtue were gains. But after encountering Christ, he put all of it in the loss column. And notice he, he doesn't stop there. He extends his losses from those few things to everything. In verse 8, he writes, Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. When Paul compared the relative value of the entire world with the greatness of Christ, he echoed the words that old hymn, I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Paul says, You can have the world, give me Christ. Verse 7, he starts by counting his most precious accomplishments as loss, and then by verse 8, he's counting everything. Anything and everything is lost except for Christ. And he even goes a step further than that. He adds, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. 
in order that I may gain Christ. So not only does Paul choose Christ over the world, he also uses a derogatory term for all things offered by the world. He calls them rubbish or, or garbage. So, so Paul isn't saying the world offers some good things, but Christ is better. He says the world is offering me garbage. The world is offering me rubbish. You can even go with the King James Version where it says, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as dung. Feces, excrement. The KJV certainly has the most vivid and crass translation, but it's also possibly the most accurate translation. Because when Paul measured everything he gained in Christ, he didn't mourn over anything he lost in the world. And there's a reason for this. The reason for this is because Paul doesn't look back at everything that he's lost because he only looks forward at everything that he's gained. And in verses 9 through 11, Paul describes the, the triple gain of following Christ. So verse 9, justification. Verse 10, sanctification. Verse 11, glorification. Justification is the freedom from the penalty of sin. Sanctification is the freedom from the power of sin. And glorification is the freedom from the presence of sin. And this is how Paul describes it, starting in verse 9. He says, And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may obtain resurrection from the dead. And again, we will focus our attention on verse 9 this morning. In verse 9, Paul outlines the doctrine of sanctification in familiar terms. It's by grace alone, Paul says, righteousness originates from God. It's through faith alone, Paul says, righteousness comes from faith and comes through faith and righteousness depends on faith. And it's in Christ alone. Paul describes this righteousness as a righteousness that's not his own. This is an alien righteousness. This is an imputed righteousness. So let's look at these three aspects of justification. So first, salvation, justification, is by grace alone. Salvation is by grace alone. At the end of verse 9, Paul pinpoints the origin of righteousness. He writes, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Let me ask you, have you ever listen to an annoying young couple playfully argue about who made the first move in their relationship. No? Just me? Okay. Well, well I've already I've already put it out there. So we're going to we're going to roll through and finish this illustration. So y'all just hang on. So so sometimes there you you'll have these two uh, young lovebirds who are just so excited that they're together and and, and they, they, loved, they loved to retell the story of how they first met, but they have a hard time agreeing on who made the first move. And they'll sort of do this song and dance where, you know, she'll say, well, I saw him on campus and I told my friend Amber that he was cute and, and she got his number for me. So I guess it was me. I guess I made the first move, but I don't know. He was already following me on social media and he had 
liked a few of my pictures, and so so maybe it was him. I mean, we just, it's so hard to know. We kind of both liked each other at the same time, and it's just nauseating. It, it's, it's the worst. It is a type of conversation that I'm, I'm trying to exit as quickly as possible. But Christ follower, you never have to play this game with God. Because he made the first move. He loved you first. Ephesians 1 says he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So before the foundations of the world, he chose you. Before the foundations of the world, he adopted you. Before the foundations of the world, he called you son. He called you daughter. In a few moments, we'll we'll cover human responsibility in salvation because we are accountable before God and we must walk in repentance and faith. But first, we must realize salvation always starts with God. Our, Our commitment to him doesn't materialize without his pursuit of us. Our response to Him doesn't come without His calling of us. We love Him because He loved us first. One of my favorite gospel presentations in the New Testament comes in Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul starts with the bad news. He says three words, you were dead. Not you were sick. Not you were on life support. Not you were in a potentially dangerous situation. You were dead. Paul opens the chapter with a crushing statement about the fallen nature of humanity. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And when we consider this phrase, you were dead, we need to look at it in two ways. First, on a micro level, you were dead is personal. It should drive you to to wrestle with your spiritual condition. It should force you to consider your place before a holy God. It should move you to a posture of gratitude or fear. But on a macro level, you are dead as universal too because Romans tells us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When Adam and Eve fell short of God's standard, their decision had rippling effects throughout human history. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so we were born into death through sin because of the actions of Adam and Eve. Because Satan convinced Eve that God was holding back. He asked, did God really say? He urged her, surely you won't die. And he convinced her to choose her way over God's way, and so she took a bite of the apple And Adam took a bite of the apple. And then suddenly, in that moment, their perfect world was turned upside down. Up until this moment, in time and space, the Garden of Eden had been a place of perfect union between the Creator and His creation. But this one act of disobedience sent humanity down a path of outright rebellion against the Holy God. And for the first time, Adam and Eve experienced all of those feelings that we know all too well. Guilt, regret, panic, 
disbelief, doubt, heartache, nervousness, and shame. These new emotions spread through their veins like ice water. On their account, sin and death entered the world. Because of their transgression, we were born into a sinful generation. We were born apart from God. We were born rebels. And you may feel something inside of you that wants to push back against that. You may hear a voice in the back of your head that says, well, that doesn't seem fair. How can I be held responsible for something I had no part in? You know, it seems unfair when we consider the the far-reaching consequences of their one decision. After all, because of their choice, death passed upon all. Because of their choice, chaos came to all. So we can trace every disease, every natural disaster, every diagnosis of cancer, a terminal illness, every divorce, every abuse, every murder, every sexual sin, every conflict, every war, back to the fall. Back to this moment. And so again, when you consider the sprawling ramifications of their choice, you may ask, how is this fair? Well, in choosing Adam as our representative, in calling Adam as our representative, God essentially says that what Adam chose is what each one of us would have chosen in the same situation. He knew Adam's choice would have been my choice. He knew Adam's choice would have been your choice. And you can argue, I never would have eaten from the tree. You can say, I've never been tempted by an apple. Maybe it's covered in in caramel. But you really don't have an argument. You don't have a case because you constantly adopt Adam's line of thinking. In large ways and small ways, every single day you say, I know better than God. You say, I'd rather go my way than God's way. You say, I know what I should do, but I'm not going to do it. And so you weren't physically present in the garden with Adam, but you ratify his decision every single day. And so Paul starts with the bad news. And there's a reason for that. There's a purpose for that because For us to fully understand the gospel, the good news, the gospel, for us to place any value in it, we have to understand what God saved us from. But often in in evangelical culture, we are so fast to run right to the good news without grappling with the bad news. I've shared this story before, but a few years ago, Lacey and I overheard a conversation between four-year-old Parker and two-year-old Chandler about spiritual things. And so Parker, at four four years old, really had this, this, just this need to classify things as good and and bad. She's always been very black and white. And so if she's watching a, a Disney movie or something, she'd say, so those are the bad guys and those are the good guys. And so when she's considering... Uh, God, she's considering 
you know, God's redemptive story, she's obviously tagged God as the good guy and Satan as the bad guy. And so she's trying to evangelize her two-year-old sister. And so she, she asked Chandler, she says, Chandler, who's the best in the world? And Chandler responded correctly. She said, God. And then she said, okay, Chandler, well, who is the worst in the world? And Chandler said, me. Apparently, at two years old, our, our middle child already had a firm grip on the depths of her depravity. Now, of course, she didn't know what she was saying, but still, I loved her answer because I would rather my children approach God's throne with that type of humility. I'd much rather them come before God with humility rather than pride. If my children can wrap their minds around the bad news, then eventually they will run willingly towards the good news. And so that's why Paul starts with the bad news. You were dead. But then he gets to the good news. In verse 4 of Ephesians 2, Paul changes the narrative. Verse 4 starts with what John Stott calls the two greatest words ever spoken in the English language, but God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, these verses are a great summary of what God has done for you. You were dead in sin, now you're alive in Christ. You were sabotaged by Satan, now you're secure in Christ. You were enslaved to your will, now you're submitted to God's will. You were a child of wrath, now you're a child of God. You were destined for hell, now you're heading for heaven. Notice all of it, all of it is in the past tense. Paul speaks in the past tense because he's referencing what Christ has already done. This isn't a, a slow, gradual, religious process of moving from death to life. This is finished business. This is what Christ did 2,000 years ago. On the cross, he became our sin. On the cross, he was punished like a follower of Satan, a son of disobedience, a child of wrath. On the cross, he crushed sin and death once and for all. He lived a perfect life, which we couldn't live, and he died a sinner's death, which we deserve. And as a result of that work, we can summarize the gospel in four words, Jesus in your place. See, the cross is where Christianity stands apart from other religions and worldviews. One of my favorite C.S. Lewis stories involved him walking into a conversation amongst a bunch of professors at a British conference on comparative religions. These experts from around the world were discussing whether any one belief was unique to the Christian faith, and so they started by eliminating possibilities, and they're using a chalkboard, and they write, you know, incarnation, and say, well, other Religions have different versions of God's appearing in human form. And they write resurrection. Again, other religions had accounts of return from death and 
this debate and discussions going on for some time until C.S. Lewis wanders into the room and says, what's the rumpus about? And when he heard that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions in his forthright manner, Lewis responded, oh, that's easy. The difference is grace. You were dead, but God. You've probably heard God's work in salvation described as Him extending an invitation to you that He invited you to a dinner party, but you must RSVP. You must accept. And while this is true, I would argue that God did exceedingly more. Along with inviting you, he, he set the table for you. He prepared a meal for you. He pulled a chair for you. He laid a plate in front of you. He placed a fork in your hand. He tucked a napkin into your shirt. And then he left you to decide. You make the choice that my children make at every meal. Either you eat or you turn up your nose. Which brings us to the next point. Brings us to the, the role that we play. Second, salvation is through faith alone. So in verse 9, Paul says righteousness originates from God, but he also says righteousness comes through faith. Righteousness depends on faith. Because grace and faith are two sides of the same coin. God extends grace, we respond in faith. But frequently, when we consider balancing God's sovereignty and human responsibility and salvation, we get lost in the weeds, we spin tires, we become stuck in this chicken or egg type discussion with no exit ramp in sight. But we must just simply realize that Scripture teaches both ideas. Prime example of this is in the Gospel of John chapter 3 when Jesus is talking to the Pharisee Nicodemus who comes to him at night uh, looking for answers about eternal life, and, and Christ offers him two seemingly contradictory instructions. First, Jesus told him, you must be born again. There are five different references in the first half of the chapter to being born again or being born from above. Christ says, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, if you want to acquire forgiveness, if you want to discover eternal life, then you must be born again. You must experience regeneration. You must do something you cannot do alone. You must do something you are incapable of doing. You must experience a miracle of God. But then in the second half of that same chapter, Christ also told him, you must believe. There are seven different references, seven different uses of the word believe. So for you to be saved by Christ, you must believe in Christ. You must hear His testimony, read His words, see His work. You experience Jesus, and then you make a decision about Jesus. You believe in Him, you call on Him, you trust in Him as your Savior, you submit to Him as your Lord. H.P. Charles Jr. explains the connection between grace and faith like this, he says grace is received through faith. Grace is the source of salvation. Faith is the means of salvation. Grace is the basis of salvation. Faith is the instrument of salvation. Grace is the grounds of salvation. Faith is the agent of salvation. 
Faith is not mental assent. It's not theological agreement. It's not personal determination. It's not warm feelings. It's not positive confessions. Faith starts with a biblical knowledge that leads to an abiding trust and results in spiritual transformation. While we will never fully comprehend the mysterious balance that exists between God's sovereignty and human free will and salvation, we can appreciate that salvation always occurs at the intersections of God's grace and our faith. Because salvation is by grace alone, and salvation is through faith alone. And then lastly, salvation is in Christ alone. Look at verse 8 again. Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. We must remember, before the Apostle Paul was a church planner, missionary, and author of two-thirds of the New Testament, he was a first century jihadist named Saul. A man who hated the Christian movement that was swelling up in the aftermath of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. A man who was an eyewitness of the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And though he never picked up a stone himself, Scripture says he approved of the execution. A man who at the beginning of Acts 9 was breathing threats and murder against the disciples. Church, I don't know how you breathe murder. But Saul was a bad dude. And so he, he went to the high priest and he requested letters to the synagogues in Damascus. He was gathering search warrants in order to expedite the eradication of the Christian movement. But on the way, Saul was stopped in his tracks by a light from heaven which he would later describe as brighter than the sun, and it blinded his eyes, it knocked him off his feet, and suddenly he was face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ, who asked him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not, why are you persecuting my movement? Why are you persecuting me? And as Saul was struggling to process the moment, he asked, who are you, Lord? Now, he probably knew the answer to his own question, but I imagine he was hoping he was wrong. Jesus responded, I'm the one whom you're persecuting. I'm here, back from the dead, I'm done with your nonsense. Rise and go to the city and you will be told what to do. And so Saul followed his instructions. He went to Damascus and for the next three days he sat in complete darkness. For the next three days, he fasted from food and water. For 72 hours, this once proud Pharisee was completely humbled before a holy God. He was helpless and dependent. He was sitting under the weight of his sin. Later in life, 
Paul would call himself the chief of sinners. One of the greatest Christians who who ever lived called himself the chief of sinners because this man, Saul, who was full of pride, became Paul, who was full of humility. He was prideful. He was arrogant. He was hard-hearted, but God transformed him. After encountering the risen Christ, Paul realized his entire life had been a bad investment. Church, have you ever made a bad investment? See a couple nodding heads. But I would imagine... The answer for most of you is yes. Some point in your life, you've made a bad investment. Last weekend, Lacey and I were working on a few projects around the house, and during one of our many trips into the garage to get a tool, I noticed a box that was full of old Beanie Babies. And I jokingly said to my bride, Look, It's our retirement plan. Now, if you're unfamiliar, in the mid-90s, for reasons that no one can fully understand, Beanie Babies became a highly sought-after collector's item, which increased exponentially in value year after year. And thankfully, during the craze, Lacey was only 9, 10, 11 years old, so she obviously didn't invest significant capital, but some people did. For example, Chris Robinson, who is a former soap opera star who starred on General Hospital in the 70s and 80s, invested a whole lot of money in Beanie Babies. In the 90s, he became so wrapped up in Beanie Baby mania that he invested $100,000 in the plush toys in hopes of using them to pay for all five of his children to go to college. And then, when the Beanie Baby bubble burst at the turn of the century, he lost every penny. And so for the Robinson family, their collection of Beanie Babies moved from a promising gain to a devastating loss in a short period of time. In the same way, for the Apostle Paul his value system was turned completely upside down when he met the risen Christ. All of his personal gains became losses and his only gain became Christ. And if you were taking inventory of your own life, if you were assessing your spiritual journey, You should see a similar shift as you walk in deeper fellowship with Jesus Christ. I can tell you throughout my life, I've put a lot of different things in the game column. When I was 14, I put my girlfriend in the game column. I was was happy to have one. When I was 16, I put my, my driver's license in the game column. When I was 17, I put my spot on the varsity baseball team in the game column. When I was 18, I put my college acceptance letter in the game column. When I was 20, I put 
popularity among my peers in the game column. When I was 22, I put my real estate license in the game column. But God has continually shown me through every season that nothing compares to knowing Jesus Christ. Because no one else can die for your sins. No one else can repair your relationship with your Heavenly Father. No one else can make you righteous. No one else can grant you eternal life. No person, no possession, or no accomplishment will ever come close to His greatness and glory. Not relationships, not money, not success, not power, not a house at the lake, not your 401k, not influence, not comfort, not popularity, not physical health. Nothing. Nothing. The, the further that I walk with Christ, the more clearly I see, as much as I love my wife, Christ is greater. As much as I adore my children, Christ is greater. As much as I value my friendships, Christ is greater. As much as I enjoy my job, Christ is greater. As much as I appreciate my house, my car, my books, my iPhone, and my golf clubs, Christ is greater. Paul is rightly arguing that nothing compares to knowing and being known by Christ. And he didn't just count his former resume as loss. He called it rubbish, garbage, dung, because he didn't want the world. He wanted Jesus. In these verses, he tells us exactly what he wants. He wants to know Christ, to gain Christ, to be found in Christ, to claim Christ, to suffer like Christ, and then to go home with Christ. Because he understood Nothing on earth can offer the joy, fulfillment, and peace found in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's clear explanation of salvation that we see here. His clear explanation of the great exchange that, that takes place. You know, he would write in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake God made him sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That when we trust in Christ, Lord, that this exchange takes place where, where he takes our sin and we take his righteousness. is the heart of, of, of the gospel message that you extend grace and we respond in faith. And that our salvation doesn't come from our righteousness, it comes from Christ's righteousness, an alien righteousness, an imputed righteousness. So Father, we, we thank you for this gospel and, and Father, I ask that as we, as we come to a time of a response in a moment, Lord, 
I hope that we can can wrestle with a couple questions in light of, of Paul's counsel here that we can ask ourselves first if we have a present trust in Christ for our salvation. Then second, if we see the fruit of repentance in our lives. And Lord, I ask you, if there's anyone under the sound of my voice that would write no beside either one of those questions, or I'm not sure, I don't know beside either one of those questions, Lord, I pray that you would give them the boldness to come forward today, to to have a conversation with someone, to ask a question that's been plaguing them, to talk to to me or to one of our deacons or or someone that's part of our church family about what would be required of them to make their relationship right with you. Father, these are big questions, but they're important questions. They're maybe the most important questions you can possibly ask yourself. So Lord, as we sing one more song and we give these questions our attention, we just ask you to speak to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.